morning again, saints of God. That was a delayed response. Good morning, saints. All right, that's better. If you have your Bible, please open it to Matthew chapter 5. We will be looking at verses 1 and 2 today. Also, if you didn't get a chance to fill out our connection pad, please um, do so. Also, if you want to get information about the Village Church and updates and announcements on the back of your worship guide, there's a way that you can sign up for Flock Note. That's how we send out information about small groups, Bible studies, anything dealing with the church, we communicate through Flock Note. So on the back of your worship guide, there's information there on how you can sign up. May 27th, 2018, that's nine months ago, 246 days ago, and, you, and so what, you may say, and then what's the big deal, you may ask? Well, that's the last sermon y'all heard in the gospel according to Matthew. It was on May the 27th, 2018, and if you can remember that the name of that the sermon series in the, in the gospel of Matthew was called The Way. And today, on January the 27th, 2019, 246 days later, nine months later, we're going to finally return to the Way Sermon Series. And this is a series all about Jesus Christ being the Way. Not an alternative way, not an optional way, not a different way, not a conservative way or a progressive way. Jesus is God's way, the priestly way, a prophetic way, a kingly way, redemptive way, reconciliation way, the salvation way, restoration way, the forgiveness way, and and the justice way. And his hands are extending out to you, reaching down to you. Receive them in faith. Receive them in faith. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus starts his earthly ministry with this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that means if you don't know Jesus this morning, then he's calling you to repentance unto life. And if you already have faith in him, then he's calling you to rest in him and to just be faithful to him. So where are you? Who are you? A disciple of Jesus or just one face in a crowd of many people? Matthew chapter 4 closes with a great crowd of people following Jesus as he teaches and preaches and and heals. Great crowds follow him all throughout Galilee and and from Jerusalem and, and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And are these people his disciples? Or they simply faces. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus sees this crowd of people, the faces, and he does something. He acts and he speaks. He, He preaches a message called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest message that he taught in the New Testament, covering three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7. This morning, I'm going to give a introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. It'll be a survey, a, a overview. We're going to give the introduction before we get lost in the details, before we get down into the weeds of the sermon. It's important for you to have 
a clear understanding of what the Sermon on the Mount is actually about. So look with me, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is God's word. Please pray with and for me. Holy Spirit, as we come to the preaching of God's truth, I pray that you will be the one to lead us into greater understanding. You are the one, our helper. You are our counselor. So I pray that you will be that for us today. And if there's anyone here who, who doesn't know Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you, that you will show them their need for a Savior. Show them that there's only one solid rock on which we can build our life, and that is on Christ alone. So, Holy Spirit, move, descend, I pray for all this in Christ's name. Amen. Think big. See the big picture. Are you familiar with those? phrases you see the big picture is like standing on on a mountaintop and and looking down into the valley it's like standing on on the roof of a a tall building and looking out into the city or it's like looking out looking outside looking out of the window of an airplane as it's flying and you're looking down on the buildings you see the big picture is a top-down view of a problem a situation a plan or teaching. It's not really concerned with the individual parts and the essential details. The big picture is concerned with the whole pie, the entire perspective. You see, the Sermon on the Mount has a big picture, an airplane view, a mountaintop view, and it's important to present the big picture before we get into the weeds and details of the sermon. One Chinese philosopher says, In order to properly understand the big picture, everyone should fear becoming mentally clouded and obsessed with one small section of truth. And all believers, if we're honest, we're guilty of becoming obsessed with one small section of scripture. And it's easy to do that when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. It's easy to become obsessed and and be clouded by, by small parts of the sermon. And we forget that the sermon is a whole, and the sermon has a context. You just can't pull those three those three chapters out of the Gospel of Matthew. They are given in a context. There is a big picture, and understanding the big picture helps you understand the Sermon on the Mount properly. Do you know the big picture about the Sermon on the Mount? What have elders told you about the big picture? What do you believe? Who do you believe? The big picture of the Sermon on the Mount is what I call cow. C-O-W. I know what you're saying. Really, Pastor Alex? Like, you're trying really hard. Yep, I am. But it's an acronym you won't ever forget. You won't ever forget when I tell you what it is. It's going to forever be cemented into your mind and hearts. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are about cow. That's the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And the first part of this big picture is to have a right understanding of who Jesus is. Who he is plays a part in, in this big picture. The text tells us that he, he goes up on a mountain after he sees this crowd of people. And it's this, this crowd of the same people that I mentioned in chapter 4. And Jesus sees their faces and he heads up the mountain. So who is Jesus here? Does this remind you of anyone else who ascended up a mountain in the Bible? Now, some commentators and theologians believe that Jesus is a new Moses here. Like Moses climbing up Mount Sinai, Jesus climbs up this mountain. Like Moses giving the law to the people of Israel, but Jesus is getting ready to give a new law. Do you agree with that view? Is this who Jesus is in these in this verse, in this passage? Is he being portrayed as a new lawgiver like Moses? What do you believe? What have you been taught? Let me be crystal clear. Jesus is not being portrayed as a new lawgiver. He's not preparing to give you a, a new version of the law. Matthew is not making any allusions to, to Moses as Jesus ascends this mountain. So please throw that view in the trash can. Throw it away. Get it out of your mind. So who is Jesus here? Who is he? Who he is is part of the big picture of this sermon. He is the son of God. These are all amen statements. I don't want to have to pull out my sign. He's the son of God. He's the Christ. He's Emmanuel. He's the redeemer. He's the savior. He's the way. And he isn't ascending this mountain as a lawgiver, nor is he ascending this mountain as a law destroyer. He ascends the mountain as a law fulfiller. Thank you, Soter. You, you trying to jam? Okay. The Holy Spirit, bro, that's what we call it. He says in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He fulfills them on your behalf. He does so because you can't. The perfect and sinless life he lives on earth fulfills every odor and dot of God's law and all of its requirements. He does it all. He fulfills it all. So who Jesus is is part of the big picture of the Sermon on the Mount. He's a law fulfiller, not a law giver. But do you believe it? And he's also a grace giver. Do you believe that? Matthew 11, 29 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say I'm going to give you a bunch of rules to follow. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, do you believe it? Do you believe it? He's a grace giver and a law fulfiller. That's who he is in this gospel, in this text. And unlike Moses at Mount Sinai, Jesus has a large crowd of people with him. And they see him climbing up the mountain. And he's not hidden by a cloud of smoke like Moses was. So he goes up to this mountain and he has a seat. He, he sits down. He positions himself to do something. He positions himself to teach. For he is also a rabbi. 
Who is he preparing to teach? Who is Jesus' audience when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount? It's those who are already committed to him. Not necessarily the people who follow him around in non-commendal ways. Verse 1, seeing the crowd, he, Jesus goes up to the mountain and he sits down and his disciples come to him. His disciples, these are the 12 men that he handpicked to follow him. And Matthew, he includes a short account, a short narrative of, of Jesus calling for his disciples. And that's found in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. And do you know what Jesus says to two of these disciples? Do you remember what he says in verse 19 of chapter 4? Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, says Jesus. He wants them to come after him, to come behind him. The call to follow is more than just a call to follow Jesus around, seeing him teach and heal and perform miracles. Okay? He's not looking for an entourage. That's That's not what he's looking for. He, he, he's not looking for an armor bearer that who, who, who comes around and serves him. As one theologian says, this call clearly points to a lasting association. Jesus is not inviting them to a pleasant stroll along the seashore, but he's inviting them to discipleship. Do you see it? It's a call to discipleship, a call to be committed to him, to submit to him, to surrender to him, to receive from him, to follow his lead and his teaching and his counsel. Jesus takes a seat on this mountain and these men come to him because of who they are, because they are his disciples. They aren't just non-committal faces in the crowd. They just follow him around. And them coming to Jesus leads to another aspect of the big picture. The Sermon on the Mount is primarily for people who are already committed to Jesus. But do you believe that? Who are already his disciples? Who are already Christians? But what about the crowd, Pastor? Well, even though the sermon is not primarily for them, they still listen in. He doesn't tell them to go away. He doesn't tell them to go home. They still are there as he preaches this sermon, listening in. And they are astonished by, by, by the authority in which he teaches with. That's what they say in Matthew 7. They are not excluded from it. But it's not for them primarily. It's for Christians. Who are the ones? Think about it, beloved. Who are the people that can come and sit under Jesus' teaching like this? Who are the people that can actually submit to what he's teaching? It's Christians, right? They're the only ones who can do that. So where are you today when it comes to Jesus? Are you facing the crowd or are you truly a disciple of Jesus? don't know him in saving faith and that he's calling you to repentance unto life he's inviting you to have all your sins forgiven he's extending his hands to you there's no place there's no other place you can go to have you, your sins forgiven there's nothing you can do to have your sins forgiven all you gotta do is receive receive him Repent of your sins. Accept him as Lord and Savior. For he alone dies on the cross in your place for all your sins. You got to understand that. He's your substitute. That's an amen statement. Unless, they, unless you have another substitute. 
and that substitute won't work. You're still in trouble. Through him alone, you can be born again. And if you already have faith in him, then he's simply calling you to rest in what he has already done for you and to live a life of faithfulness to him. If you're a Christian, that's what he's calling you to. But do you believe him? Next part of the big picture is what Jesus does is part of the big picture of this sermon and his ministry. That's what he does throughout the Gospel of Matthew. For three years, he, he ministers to people. And again, remember how he starts his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in verse 2, he says he, he opens his mouth and he teaches them. Jesus' ministry consisted of three things, preaching, teaching, and healing. That, that's what he did throughout his earthly ministry for three years. He preached, he taught people, he healed people. And here's the point. That's why you can't isolate the Sermon on the Mount from the rest of Scripture. These chapters are part of a larger context in the Gospel. And according to John Piper, chapters four, 5 through 7 and, and chapters 8 and 9 are like a sandwich. They form a sandwich. And Matthew chapter 4, 23 and Matthew 9, 34, they are the bread of that sandwich. Those two verses are summary statements about Jesus' ministry. And in between those summary statements are the Sermon on the Mount and chapters 8 and 9. The summary statements of his message, of his sermon says, of his teaching is, he preached in the synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease. That's a summary of Jesus' ministry on earth. He taught, he preached, he healed. And then listen to what Piper says about Jesus' ministry. He says, Jesus made it his ministry to preach the coming of the kingdom, the way of the kingdom, and to demonstrate the purpose and power of the kingdom by healing the sick. The kingdom of heaven is central to Jesus' ministry within the Gospel of Matthew. If you've done any study in the Gospel of Matthew, you know the kingdom of heaven is central to his message. It's all throughout of it. Even John the Baptist, when he started his ministry, said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the Sermon on the Mount has to also be understood in the context of the kingdom. Amen statement. You cannot come to the Sermon on the Mount without seeing it in the context of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven. What does the kingdom of heaven mean? What do you think it means? What does it mean? You can participate if you want to. If you feel led to speak, you may speak. God's people on earth. What else does, what else do you think it means? Any other suggestions? Kids, what about you? What do you think the kingdom of heaven means? I know some of your kids like to talk. Come on. The kingdom of heaven refers to God's sovereign rule and reign, his lordship, his kingship. Or let me put it this way. It refers to God's way of doing things, his agenda, his plans. And the Sermon on the Mount is the way of the kingdom. As I said earlier, it's called CAL. And CAL is an acronym for convictions of the way. Convictions of the way. The Sermon on the Mount is about the convictions of God's kingdom. 
is convictions that all believers have, regardless of race, culture, gender, age, or nationality. We all have these convictions. We all have them. They have these convictions because of who they already are. Do you you know that, right? We have these convictions because of who we already are. Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. Do you agree with that? As American Christians, our true citizenship is in heaven. Colossians 1.13 says, he has delivered us from the, from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. But do you believe it? Do you believe that? Functionally, do you believe that? Now, I know you can believe it here. But how you live your life day to day in this country, do you believe your true citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven? Because if you're honest, the honest answer would be no. Because America has too much to offer for us to live that way. If we're honest. All believers are part of God's country. And each of them, guess what, have the same status. There is no hierarchy. All are equally sons and daughters. God has no favorites. He has no middle child, no older child, no younger child. We're all this child. All this child. Do you have kingdom conviction? Or a cow? Convictions of the way. We all do. That's why many Christians in this country are outraged about the new abortion law in New York. You think you're outraged about that because, because you're following some laws? You're outraged about that because you have kingdom convictions. That's why you're upset. That's why we're upset. Not because we're Republicans or conservatives. Because we're Christians. That's why many Christians in our country get outraged and grieved when they hear or see stories about unarmed black men being shot by cops. Because we have kingdom convictions. That's why many Christians in our country advocate for the poor. Sanctity of life is a kingdom conviction, not a political or liberal conservative agenda. Please know that. It's a kingdom conviction because our Heavenly Father says so, not some man. That's why. That's a kingdom conviction. Marriage between one man and one woman. Kingdom conviction. But do you believe it? We all have kingdom conviction. And God says, Satan, their life is from the womb to the tomb. From the womb to the tomb. From the, say it with me, from the womb to the tomb. God said that, not our political parties. So we advocate for Satan's life because of who we are, because of the kingdom we belong to. That's cow. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Giving you convictions. Not giving you more rules to follow. Not giving you more things to to add to your plate. He's saying, I want you to reorganize your life according to God's agenda. That's what the sermon is about. Our priorities, our values, our allegiances, all that stuff changes as Christians. That as we navigate this culture, as we navigate life here, we navigate it as sons and daughters of a king. And where our true citizenship is, is in heaven.
in that we are here as ambassadors for Christ. That's our role here. We are ambassadors of the kingdom. And guess what? No one else in the world can be that. That's an amen statement. The government can't be ambassadors for Christ. Now, God may use them because he owns all governments, but they are not the church. We are the church. Social programs, social movements, they have their place, but they are not ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. And we live with kingdom convictions. Well, what does that mean? It means when you're part of a group that has convictions that they don't align with your kingdom convictions, then you like this. That's what that means. That's what that means. When you're hanging out with people whose lives don't line up fully with your convictions, that means you have you at long leave at some point. That as Christians, we don't align ourselves fully with any movement. Because at the end of the day, if Christ ain't king of that movement, it ain't Christ-centered. Now, he can use it to do good things because he's sovereign, but at the end of the day, if Christ ain't Lord of it, it ain't Christian. And just because something's founded on Christian values, don't make it Christian. Because Satan got Christian values, but he ain't Christian. He know all the scripture, but he ain't going to bow down to it. So, so listen, even the enemy has Christian values because he know it. He knew it all. And that's how he trick us up. Because he has them, but he don't submit to them. So we navigate life with values of the kingdom. And I need you to hold that in mind as I go through this Sermon on the Mount and as I talk about the Beatitudes, as I talk about the voice and, and retaliation and, and prayer and loving your enemies. He is not giving you law. He's giving, he's saying, I want you to have certain convictions. Certain convictions. That's all Jesus is giving you. Because the, the, the convictions is for people who are already committed to him. Already his disciples. Remember, he sat down and who came to his feet? Who came to his feet? His disciples. They came and sat at his feet. Please know, beloved, if all you think Jesus has done for you is died and gone to heaven, that's just part of the story. <laughs> that's part of the story. That's not the whole story. Now you get the pleasure of sitting at his feet until you die and go to glory. Until then, you get to sit at his feet on this side of heaven. That's what we got now. That's how I don't need you to leave here thinking, Pastor Alex preached alone. I knew it. I knew it. He preached legalism. No, I am not. No, please put that in your Bible. Pastor Alex is not preaching legalism as he goes to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm talking about kingdom convictions. That's what I'm talking about. One Christian author says, the Sermon on the Mount is not law that makes us see our need for gospel. Rather, it's wisdom from God. I love that. Inviting us through faith to reorient our lives and values and visions and habits from the ways of external righteousness to wholeheartedness toward God. This isn't law, but gospel. Jesus is inviting us into a life in God's kingdom 
both now and in the future age. This is grace. This is grace. Do you think the only time you're going to get to enjoy God is when you die and go to heaven? It's the only time you can enjoy him. The only time you can, can know him is when you fully die and go to heaven. That's sad. You can enjoy him now. You can enjoy being his son and daughter now. Think about the way parents, you parent your kids. You, you, you have convictions in your home, right? Or do your kids give you convictions to tell you what to do? No. No, 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 that's not, the, that's not happening. And so in God's kingdom, he's the parent. He's the daddy. He's the daddy. We the kids. And daddy says, I have some convictions I want you to have. And through my Holy Spirit, he's going to work those convictions in you. It's not God's word's fault when we turn it into law. That's our fault. It's not, it's not the word's fault. It's not the worst fault if we turn everything into legalism and try to earn salvation. That's not the worst fault. That's on us. So we have to go and have a coming to meeting meeting with Jesus and say, heal me of my legalism. Heal me of my self-righteousness so that I can learn how to live in grace and not turn everything into to-do lists. Help me do that. As I told in the, in the table talk, self-awareness is a beautiful thing. Some of us are more prone to being the older brother, and some of you are more prone to being the younger brother. But you got to know that. <laughs> know that. And then ask the Holy Spirit to lead you to the place where you need to be. It's a struggle. But that's why we have grace, beloved. And this table, this table is about grace. It's a reminder about Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a reminder that he lived a life that none of us could live. He did. Perfect, holy, blameless. He was tempted in every way, as we are, yet without sin. We can't even fathom that. That Jesus has been tempted in every way, as I have, yet without sin? You bet. Think about the things that tempt you. And Jesus was tempted in that way, yet without sin. This table is a, it has been given to all God's people. All God's people. If you have seven faith in Jesus, this table is for you. And he invites you to come to receive this meal so the spirit can give you spiritual nourishment. Please know the Holy Spirit is at work here in this meal on your behalf. Now, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, thank you for coming to join us for worship. And if you have questions about what it means to have your sins forgiven, please see me or one of the elders or deacons after the service, and we'll talk with you about it. We'll talk with you. If you feel that, if you sense that tug on your heart, do not leave here today without talking with me about it. And we can go in my office and we can talk. Parents will ask that the kids with you abstain from the elements until they've been invited to the table by the church that you are a member of. And kids, I mean, all the kiddos, 
This meal is a reminder to you that Jesus loves you. He loves you. And that he really did die on the cross for all your sins. And if you want forgiveness, then he's your way to that forgiveness. And as your pastor, it's my prayer, and I'm pretty sure your parents or your grandparents' prayer, that you will one day come to Jesus in saving faith, and you will be able to partake of this meal with your mom and dad or your grandparents. And as the office, I like to call the officers forward, and if they come forward, I want you to spend a few time, few moments in silent meditation, asking the Holy Spirit to prepare your hearts for the Lord's table.